Our scripture reading this morning is again from the book of Philippians as we continue our study of that book. Always on my mind has been my theme as we are learning to think like Jesus. And to that end, today's reading is certainly food for thought, good thoughts. It's about setting your mind to finishing what you begin. Little could be more like the mind of Christ than this. The writer of Hebrews, if, if I could just quote him before we get to Philippians, said, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, our champion, who initiated and perfected our faith, He endured. And that's exactly the mindset Paul speaks of here. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse number 12. (coughs) Excuse me. Paul says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. But I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. I'll stop right there. Two notes as we begin. One, I've spoken from this text at least one other time in my life, but none of you were there to hear it. Uh, I can barely remember if I was there. The absolute first sermon I ever gave was from these verses 27 summers ago. I was so nervous. uh, I don't remember what I said. It probably wasn't worth hearing. I do remember this green-colored legal pad that all my handwritten sermon notes were on. And I remember that everyone goo-gooed and gagaed to me after the service about how wonderful that sermon was, but I think it had much more to do with duration than content. I spoke for 11 minutes <laughs> and told them everything I knew. And it was time to go home early. And I learned right away, if you get to the point, don't hold people too long. Everybody seems to be pretty happy with you. As my mentor said to me after the service, you did good. You stood up, you spoke up, and you shut up. And a second note, what Paul says in these verses here is directly linked to what he has just said. The, the text that Garrett spoke from last week. Verse 12, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things. What things? Well, you might remember Paul spoke of his former life, all of his accomplishments, his pedigree, 
And he considered them all good for nothing. Garbage. Less than garbage. In fact, Garrett would not say the word that it, Paul actually uses in the Greek. I won't say it either. Although I almost did just because I felt like he was daring me to say something else sensational. The Greek word is skubalon. It means, you know what. So, to sum it up, Paul says, I'm flushing everything down the toilet for the sake of knowing Christ, for the sake of knowing the power of His resurrection, for the sake of being Christ alone. So, Paul has faith, but he must keep the faith. He has trusted Jesus but he is still in pursuit of Jesus. He is on the path, but he realizes he must stay on the path and finish what he started. One of the greatest tales ever told about all this is told by an ancient and clever slave turned storyteller named Aesop. He told a ton of stories. The ant and the grasshopper, the goose who laid the golden egg, the fox and the grapes, 700 stories of his but of Aesop's fable, his ta- fables, his tale, the tortoise and the hare, is his most popular. And this is my favorite interpretation. Bugs Bunny and Cecil. You do know that's the turtle's name, right? And that he has a jetpack underneath that shell. You didn't see those cartoons growing up? Are you kidding me? Thank you, Bobby. God bless you. I see that hand. We all know the story, don't we? This blustering, proud rabbit who is so fast, is always bragging about his blazing speed, demoralizing the tortoise until finally the tortoise can't take anymore and he challenges the hare, the rabbit, to a race. Well, after a bout of uncontrollable laughter, the hare says, you're on. The gun fires, off they go, and we know what happens. The rabbit gets so far ahead, he decides to bed down for a nap. And while he's catching Z's alongside the road, the tortoise, slow and steady, here he comes, passes his foe and crosses the finish line first. We know the story. We know the plot line. And whenever we hear the story, somebody usually explains it to us like this. Slow and steady. Never give up. Persevere. It's a story about being the underdog. It's a story about overcoming all of these odds. It's not a story about that at all. The only reason, no offense to Cecil, the only reason the turtle wins is because the rabbit quits. If the rabbit had just stayed the course and not taken the nap, we would have never heard the story about the tortoise in the first place. Again, no offense to slow turtles. Because as true as it is, slow and steady will win the race. But it won't if you quit mid-race. You understand? Finish what you start. That really is the point of Aesop's tale here. Don't quit midstream. And as much as we like to see ourselves as the turtle, most of us are the rabbit. We start off good. Got plenty of energy, plenty of speed. We're equipped for the race. But at some point, maybe perchance we need a nap. Maybe we get tired. Maybe we pull a muscle. Maybe we get bored. Maybe we get demoralized ourselves. We quit. We sit down beside the road and our dreams 
and our plans, our careers, our marriages, our years just run right by us. And in some cases, our faith in the process leaves us. Because we started out in faith and with faith, but we sort of give up on it. Our faith slips away. And here's where Paul's admonition is so clear to us today. Focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Press on to reach the end of the race. Hold to the progress that is already made. Slow and steady will sometimes win the race, but you must finish what you begin. G.K. Chesterton, a 300-pound laughing British intellectual, said this, The Christian ideal has not been tried, not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And I would amend that somewhat to say, faith has not been explored and begun. It's that faith often goes unfinished and incomplete. Maybe the reason for that is that faith is not linear. It's not direct. Faith doesn't move and life doesn't move from point A to point B without any twists and turns or hiccups along the way. Now, we learned in geometry class a long time ago that the shortest distance between two points is what? A straight line. And that's how we want life to go. Are you listening? Here's my plan. And as it's often been said, if you want to hear God laugh, tell Him your plans. We start at point A, and we want to move to point B as quickly as possible. Plain, painless, straight lines. Well, circuitous lines don't work very well in geometry class, but roundabouts and twists and turns are more often the norm for faith in life than anything that appears straight. Life simply doesn't move in that direction. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And many choose that way. And why not? It's easy. And then he adds, but the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult. Keeping the faith can be a challenge. So here's a public service announcement. Those who peddle to you a faith that is always easy, that is always the answer to all of your questions, a faith that treats God like a vending machine, stick in the right prayer, or more importantly, stick in the right amount of dollars in the offering plate, and God will deliver something to you sweet and tasty. The people who would peddle that to you are selling you snake oil. Because faith is not always that easy. And the trouble when you buy snake oil is that you both lose your investment at the beginning and suffer severe disappointment in the end. Because when we treat God this way and God does not respond as we wish God would, God does not respond the way that we thought He could, then what happens is we either look at ourselves and say something is defective about my faith, or we say God is a colossal disappointment 
and is not listening to me, maybe God doesn't even exist. No, you didn't, Judy. (laughs) My faith is tested already today. You see that? (laughs) 21st century problems. It's all right. I've been plowing through this book recently, a book that I, I read not many years after that first sermon I was telling you about. But I didn't appreciate the book or the man who wrote it as I should have. And I've come back to it now and I can't get away from it. It's entitled Letters and Papers from Prison by German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A little background. Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Gestapo April 5th, 1943. And he was charged with subversion of the armed forces. Because he was helping other pastors evade military service. And he had secretly been working with Germany, Germany's intelligence agencies to stop Hitler, to stop the Holocaust, and hopefully to stop World War II. He could not stand idly by, and he said this, We are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. Silence. In the face of evil is evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. And not to act is to act. Now, that's easy for us to say in the 21st century. He said that in the face of Nazi aggression in World War II Germany. So he was arrested. He would spend two years in prison... And just hours before the Flossenburg concentration camp was liberated by Allied forces, Bonhoeffer was sentenced to death and hanged. April 9th, 1945, he was 39 years old. And the book I am reading was never intended to be a book. It is a collection of letters he wrote and received while he was in prison. And in them you see his struggles. You see his development. You see his faith often in crisis as it is working itself out. And there's this one letter he wrote to his friend, Eberhard Bethgay. I haven't been able to stop rereading it. He talks about how superficial faith that used to sustain us just doesn't work anymore. We cannot treat God as a gadget that will rescue us from all of our troubles. Here are the words of that dying man, less than a year before his execution. Faith does not mean being redeemed out of our sorrows, hardships, anxieties. Christians do not have an escape route from all of our earthly tasks and our difficulties. It is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. We must live with life's duties, problems, successes, failures, experiences, and perplexities. In doing so, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God. That, I think, is faith. And that is how one becomes a man or a woman and how one becomes a Christian. 
So what are we pressing toward? Complete surrender. Total dependence upon God. Even in the face, especially in the face of those things in life that cannot be solved, resolved, or answered. And I'll quote Bonhoeffer one more time. We live in a godless world and we cannot cover it up with religion. Being a Christian means being a human being. A human being that Christ is creating in us. We have needs, we have questions, we have sins and fears, but faith is allowing oneself to be pulled into walking the path that Jesus walks. And that, friends, requires pressing on. It's simple, but it ain't easy. Pressing on in the path that Christ walks. Here's a recent example. I traveled this week to Hot Springs, Arkansas on Tuesday to officiate the funeral of Patsy Height. If you don't know Patsy, some of you might remember Joe Height, her son. Joe was one of the first subscribers to A Simple Faith. And uh, he left us almost 10 years ago now. When he was here, he was... Single and 30-something, good-time party animal, fishing captain with long, flowing black locks out of the back of his ball cap. Now he's in his 40s and balding and working the family business, married with two kids. And I said, it happens, it happens. But thankfully, he's been there back at home to take care of his mom these last 18 months after she had a cancer diagnosis. He told me he's probably worked only 100 hours this week, this, this, this year, because he's been with his mom so much. And uh, he's a self-avowed mama's boy, even in his 40s. And he has one of the softest hearts of anybody you will ever meet. And he said to me this week, Ronnie, I'm just so hurt about all of this. And we know each other well. So I said to him, no, you're not. You're pissed off. You're angry with God because God didn't do what you asked him to do. And he looked at me stunned for just a split second. And then he grinned and he said, you know, you're right. And I've said some things to God in recent days that I hope God can forgive me for. And I said, Joe, God forgave you before you said it. If there's any, even, even any forgiving that has to be done. It don't take faith, I said to him, to pray for your mother to be healed. Because that's what you want. It takes faith when your mother's not healed. When things don't turn out the way that you want them to be. And then we had this discussion about this godless world that can't be covered up with religion. God didn't cause his mom's cancer. God didn't will her death. How could God be in any of that? The challenge is to keep the faith anyway. And as I said to Joe, it's okay to be angry and frustrated with God because we all need a little crisis of faith from time to time. And we do. 
You do. Because faith that is unproven is unsustainable. A faith that doesn't go through a stress test cannot be trusted. We will never press on to reach the end of our race without these seasons of having to press and to push and to strain toward what is ahead. I don't wish for you troubles and sufferings. We should never glory in someone's trouble. But they're coming. I wish I could tell you differently. But they're coming. To live in this world, to live in this godless world, is to experience trouble. Faith meets us in those troubles. And ask, will you keep faith and trust now? That things are not going the way you thought they would. Or will you sit down along the side of the road and catch a few Z's and let it go right by? Quoting Bonhoeffer, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God. I've been quoting all these spiritual giants today. Here is one more, priest and theologian Henry Nouwen. If you haven't read his books or you are unfamiliar with his work, start with, I think, The Return of the Prodigal. Maybe his best book. Or The Wounded Healer. There's a few others, but start there. You'll be challenged, you'll be unsettled, but you won't be disappointed. And this last story is from his book, Turn My Morning Into Dancing. And the subtitle is so good, Finding Hope in Hard Times. It's about throwing ourselves completely into the arms of God. And by way of that, he tells a story about a group of German trapeze artists known as... known as the Flying Rodleys. would be a great name for a band, wouldn't it? A bluegrass band, the Flying Rodleys? I'll let Henry tell the story. When the Flying Rodleys came to town, me and my father went to see the show. I will never forget how enraptured I became when I first saw the Rodleys move through the air, flying and catching as elegant dancers. The next day, I returned to the circus to see them again and introduced myself to them as one of their great fans. They invited me to attend their practice sessions, gave me free tickets, asked me to dinner, and suggested that I travel with them for a week. I did so, and we became friends. This is just really funny to me. A Catholic priest literally joins the circus. One day I was sitting with Rodley, the leader of the troop, talking about flying, and he said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I'm the great star on the trapeze, but the real star is the one who catches. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him on my long jump. And the secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing. The catcher does everything. I said, you do nothing? And Rodley answered, nothing. The worst thing the flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. A flyer must fly. And a catcher must catch. And the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there. Now it makes the obvious application. God will be there. When you make your long jump. 
Don't try to grab him. Just stretch out your arms and your hands. Trust, trust, trust. 